My title for you this morning is The Feast of Booths, Living as Sojourners and Exiles. By way of introduction, let me briefly begin by saying this. We all have been travelers, one way or another, for one reason or another. We've traveled to visit special landmarks, family, or just to vacation in a place that doesn't look like the day-to-day life that we experience on a regular basis. And when we do this kind of traveling, because we can't do the entire trip in one stretch, oftentimes we stop at a hotel, something decent enough for us to abide, but nothing nearly as nice as our final destination, right? Church, let me turn a corner and say this. The world is not our home. We're just passing through. It might be nice enough to abide, but it is not nearly as nice as our final destination. It isn't nearly as nice as the glory that Scripture describes is entitled to us, is an inheritance of ours, by virtue of the fact that we are God's children through faith in Jesus Christ. Like all the feasts, the Feast of Booths serves a particular purpose. But in addition to serving a particular purpose in its historical context, it also was a shadow of things to come. It also was a picture of a fulfillment that we would see much later unfold in the New Testament. So I'd like to share with you, as I have the previous two weeks, three points, the origin the practice, and the fulfillment under the title of the Feast of Booths, living as sojourners this morning. Our first point is its origin, looking at the origin of the Feast of Booths. To begin, we're going to start with the origin. As we have already, while it isn't stipulated here in the text in other than simple terms, We do, in Leviticus, get a little more information where the Feast of Booths, which is also sometimes called Tabernacle, was a feast when people would basically camp out for seven days, and so it is called the Feast of Booths, or we would maybe say the word tents today. And undoubtedly, it was a historical referent to the Exodus and the subsequent wandering of God's people after the Exodus in the wilderness for 40 years. They were wanderers as a result of their disobedience and their rebellion. They weren't restful. They weren't at home. They weren't at peace because they were wandering as a result of their faithlessness. While it isn't explicitly described here, this is what Leviticus chapter 23 says in a similar passage to that of Deuteronomy 16. It says this, quote, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Let me read that again. This is Leviticus chapter 23, verse 43, that your generations may know that I made the people dwell of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. 
Now, as I see it, there are two things for us to learn here in this scripture and its parallel text in Leviticus chapter 23. First, part of the purpose of the feast is to commemorate God's faithfulness while they wandered in the wilderness. Part of the purpose of this feast is to commemorate God's faithfulness to his people while they wandered in the wilderness. You, you know the story. I don't have to repeat it, but I'm going to do it just in case it isn't familiar. The people of God were miraculously and mightily delivered from Egypt and that bondage and slavery by God. But when they were delivered, they went into the wilderness and wandered 40 years because of their failure to believe in God and his work. And there God sustained them with manna and 100 other provisions that they wouldn't have experienced otherwise. In other words, he was more faithful to his word than they were faithful to his word. It's the first thing that I want you to note. Listen, Deuteronomy chapter 8 says this, Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. In other words, church, God took care of the people. He managed them in such a way that they could, even in their disobedience, fulfill his purpose and plan. God provided for them. And this feast is designed to commemorate the faithfulness of God to his purpose during that period of time when they lived in tents in the wilderness. Second, part of the purpose of the feast is to inform the later generations. Part of the purpose of the feast is not only to commemorate God's faithfulness, but secondly, to inform later generations. We see this in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 43. It says, that your generations may know. Did you get that? That your generations may know. Now, let me put the principle to you this way. If the people who went through it do not pass down the lessons, then how will those who didn't go through it ever know? Let me say that again. If those who lived through it do not pass down the principles to those who did not go through it, how will they ever know? This is what Leviticus 23 is saying, that your generations may know. Church, I want to say this. Please understand this. No one is more responsible for your family's faith than you are. No one is more responsible for your family's faith than you are. Now, there are teachers here at our school. There are leaders here among our church. And, of course, you have a pastor. But at the end of the day, we contribute, we support We add to, but we cannot be a replacement for you. You are the primary person for sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with your family and your friends. We must pass it down. That's our responsibility. It isn't anybody else's responsibility. We must tell the stories. We must retell the stories. It isn't only something that we teach because the gospel isn't only taught. It's caught. Our kids see us live it out and they understand the depth of the gospel by seeing it with their eyes. 
The Apostle Paul said it this way, that we are to bring up our children in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. That's Ephesians 6.4. In Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 7, it says, These words I command you today shall be on your heart. That's the first step. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. That's the second step. You see, we can't teach something to our children that we don't first own ourselves. When you teach something to someone else with an expectation that they will understand it and live by it, but you yourself don't understand it and live by it, that's called hypocrisy. We're not aiming at developing hypocrisy in the kingdom of God or in our church. Amen? What we are aiming to do is to pass down, Leviticus chapter 23, show this to the generations that are to come. We are aiming at passing down what we, are, we, we ourselves, excuse me, understand and have accepted. And did you get that in Deuteronomy chapter 6? You shall take these words of mine and put them in your heart and diligently teach them to your t- children. You teach them diligently not according to their convenience, not according to your convenience, not according to their tendency to listen. Diligent means that we are to work at inculcating the truth of the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ in the souls of our children. Don't wait until they come to Sunday school or Bible fellowship or small group. Don't wait until they come to Awana. When they are small and on your knee, when they are in the swing or sitting on your lap in the rocking chair, talk to your children about Jesus. Do not wait. The longer you wait, the sooner the enemy comes. And he will sow seeds of disagreement and faithlessness if you are lazy and you hesitate to share with your children the good news of Jesus. This is a solemn responsibility. This is a serious responsibility that your generations may know. Why did the... Children of Israel participate every year in the Feast of Booths because sometimes after God does an amazing thing, you forget. And then when you forget, you don't tell the story. And those who didn't experience it for themselves don't learn how great God is and how great are those things that he can do. Psalm 66, verse 16. Psalm 66, verse 16, it says, Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. Friends, that's testimony. That's what we mean when we're talking about testimony. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I'll tell you what he's done for my soul. My question for you is, have you practiced your testimony? Have you practiced, have you meditated on, have you considered what God has done for you over the years of your life and over the time of your faith? But that's not just it. That's not the first, or that's only the first. That's not the only point, the origin. The second point is the practice. 
When we look at the practice, we'll see a handful of things that the children of Israel, the people of God, were to do in order to participate in the Feast of Booths. Like other feasts, there were things to be obeyed and observed. But unlike the Feast of Weeks, or First Fruits, as it is also called, the Feast of Booths happened toward the end of the year, toward the end of the harvest. This would be the autumn, not the beginning. It wasn't about what they should anticipate, in other words. It wasn't about the first fruits. It was about the harvest, what God had already done. And their instructions were clear, and here they are. They were to mark off a period of seven days. They were to make booths or tents. Similar to what we would get like at BJ's, a 10 by 10 tent. That's very similar to what they would make. They were to, thirdly, they were to rest and celebrate. They weren't to work. And they were to celebrate. Rejoice and be joyful and eat and have a good time with each other. And finally, at the end of it all, they were to perform a sacrifice per God's instructions. Four simple points. Mark off seven days. Make booths or tents a place where they would spend these seven days. They were to rest and celebrate, and they were to perform a sacrifice per instructions. Church, you know what I want? You know what I call this? Practically speaking, you know what I call this? This is a spiritual retreat. This is a spiritual retreat. This is God telling his people once a year, I want you to leave your house. I want you to spend some time outside. This is, they're going to they're camp out. And when you camp out, I don't want you to work. But, but not only do I not want you to work, I want you to rest. Those two things are not, just because you're not working doesn't mean you're not resting. Some of you have a brain like mine. Just because you're not working doesn't mean your mind is quiet, right? This is something that we are purposefully supposed to pursue. Not only are we outside of the familiar, outside of the mundane, but we are separating ourselves for what purpose? For rest. And not only are we resting, but we're also celebrating. Celebrating what? Celebrating who God is. Celebrating what God has done. Do you realize that sometimes, this is what, this is what we face on a regular basis, what advertisers call noise. This is why advertisements are louder than the show you're watching. Why the, while, why the billboards are so attractive because they're trying to break through what advertisers call noise. You and I are inundated with what they call noise, which is na- basically this idea that everyone and everything is trying to communicate to us so constantly that our brains never have rest. Not only are we supposed to unplug to rest, but we're supposed to unplug to rest to celebrate what God has done, and sometimes the noise causes us to forget what God has done. We're so distracted by the noise that we forget. Not only are we to do that, it says we're, we're to make feasts or booths. Now, you can do this however you want to. You can rent a room on the beach, or you could borrow someone's home that's not being used for a weekend, 
But when you do a spiritual retreat, ideally, you're not doing it at your house because you'll see the dishes or you'll look at the grass or you'll see a weed or a dirty bathroom and you'll say, I'll get back to it after I do this chore. Finally, you make a sacrifice. Of course, the sacrifice in Deuteronomy was an animal sacrifice because the gift that the people would bring to God was about life. God was teaching them in the legal system the value of life. And of course, the sacrifice that was made once and for all for us was Jesus. No sacrifices are required anymore. Amen? But what I want to bring to your attention before we get to the fulfillment is this. Spiritual retreats are an important part of your spiritual health. If you don't remove yourself from the regular, from the norm, if you don't place yourself in another booth or tent for a period of time, whatever that period of time might be, if you don't rest and celebrate who God is and what he's done, and make some sort of sacrifice. And by that, we might mean a commitment. I'm not going to tell you what that commitment might be because God's requirement of a commitment of you and me might be different at the conclusion of a spiritual retreat. He might expect or demand something from me that he doesn't expect or demand from you, and vice versa. But practically speaking, my challenge for you is this. When will you schedule a spiritual retreat. Not a vacation. It's not the same. You know what a vacation is. It's like you, you go somewhere and you run yourself ragged so that you can come back and go to work. You know what I mean? You get back from Disney or sitting on the beach at Naples and you come back completely burnt and exhausted or you've walked 10 miles, you're like, look at how many steps I did. I haven't done that many steps in years. Your knees hurt. Your feet hurt. You're tired. And you got to go to work Monday. That's not rest. That's vacation. That's fun. Okay, that's important too. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is blocking off time to spend with God in prayer, reading the Bible, if you want to go for a walk outside, go for a walk outside. If you get hungry, eat. If you're not hungry, don't eat. If you want to fast, fast. If you get tired, sleep. If you're not tired, use the time to focus, to pray, to meditate. But you're only spending that time resting. And you're only spending that time celebrating. So here are a couple of suggestions if you've never done a spiritual retreat. Number one, find a place no one can get to you. Find a place no one can get to you. Number two, do not bring your phone except for emergencies. Do not bring your iPad. Do not bring your MacBook. Or if you use Windows stuff, that's fine too. Don't bring any devices because you'll try to find out what's happened on Instagram or what the Kardashians are doing or whatever. And it's not important. That's noise. You don't need noise. You need rest. 
You need to celebrate. Leave the devices at home. Only bring the phone for an emergency. Turn the phone off. Find a place nobody can get to you. Leave your devices at home. Number three, have a plan. Have a plan. And by a plan, what I mean is a simple plan. I don't mean have every minute of every hour you're on this spiritual retreat regimented. That's not fun. The most successful experience you will have on a spiritual retreat will be one where you have a structure, but you're following the promptings of God's Spirit. You're not telling Him what to do. You're listening, as it were, to Him tell you what to do. Amen? But you do need to have a structure. So let's say, for example, you're going to say, Joe, I'm taking a Friday next week for a spiritual retreat just for myself. What should I read? How should I pray? I said, what are you going, what are you going through? What are some challenges that you're facing? You can grab some particular psalms, a certain gospel, whatever it is that has material that speaks directly to those things. Next point. After you have your basic structure of leaving everybody behind, leaving your devices at home, and having certain things that you're going to read, the next point is this. Journal your prayers. Journal your prayers. This is an incredibly helpful discipline when it comes to your prayer life. Sometimes when we pray, we start praying, and then we think about our kids, or we think about our project that wasn't done on Friday, that we're, we need to hit the floor running on Monday, and what's coming up on Wednesday night, or whatever. We always have things that invade, but when you write your prayers... You become focused. And before you know it, you will journal pages of a prayer because you are continually focusing on what you're doing at that moment, which is praying. So there's a handful of things that you can do that are practical. Then, at the end of this spiritual retreat, what's going to change? That's your sacrifice. What's going to change? Are you going to give up watching a certain kind of show? Is that your sacrifice? Are you going to make some adjustments to the relationships that you've been maintaining that you really have no business maintaining? Maybe that's going to be your sacrifice. Maybe you're going to reassess the way you manage your calendar. Maybe that's going to be your sacrifice. Maybe you're going to reassess how you manage your finances and start giving the way you ought to give. Maybe that's going to be your sacrifice. Remember that every, every single feast, the three points throughout the year that the people came together to participate in these feasts, they were not to come empty-handed. They were to give God something. What would you give God at the conclusion of this. Now, don't tell me now, because you really don't know. You haven't done the spiritual retreat yet. you got to do the spiritual retreat. You can't assume you know what you're going to do after, say, if it's one day, 10 or 12 hours of doing absolutely nothing but praying and thinking and reading God's Word. How would you be different if you had a spiritual retreat at the end of this week? 
something interesting to consider, as I can tell you. One day will be radical for you. But you do that a couple days, and one day is not enough. Then you need two days. Then you need a weekend. And before you know it, maybe you'll need the seven days. Now, that might not be wildly convenient for your family. But what you can be when you are present will be significantly better because of what you've done when you were absent. There's a saying, and I think this is something that we all need to consider when it comes to the adjustments that we're making in our lives, but disappear for six months and come back different. Disappear for six months and come back different. That's what a spiritual retreat is. Disappear for 24 hours, disappear for 36 hours, disappear for 48 hours, disappear for a block of time, and come back how? Come back different. You cannot change amidst the noise in your life. It is specifically designed to keep you from improving. Everyone who is managed by the noise stays mediocre. The only people who are excelling are the people who block off time like the Feast of Booths teaches us to, to remove ourselves from the perfunctory and the mundane, from the norm, to do something different, namely nothing, except spending time with God in prayer, in reading, in journaling, so that our souls are purified, our minds are purified, and our hearts are realigned with his will. Before I get to our last point this morning, the fulfillment, I want to challenge you to a spiritual retreat. Some kind, some way. You can start small. Some of you, this is the first time you've ever heard of it, and you, you, you can't imagine spending 24 hours without Twitter or X or whatever it's called now. You need to try this, but start small. When you're at work and your lunch hour comes, take your sandwich, go to the park, and sit by yourself. Eat your sandwich and pray. And I don't mean pray in your mind. I mean talk out loud like a crazy person. It's exactly what I mean. People are going to think I'm crazy. Good. Good. Maybe that's the problem. Nobody thinks you're crazy. When Peter preached in the book of Acts last week, that's exactly what happened. We learned that, right? He preached and they went, this guy's crazy. Spend an hour on a spiritual retreat one day this week. And build up to a day. Build up to a weekend. But don't think for a second that you're doing A-OK without a spiritual retreat built into your calendar. I guarantee you, you're not. You've got to have spiritual retreats built into your life. That's part of the shadow of the Feast of Booths that finds its fulfillment, which is the exact point that I want us to close with, that is, Fulfillment. Now, for this, I would like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. This is in the New Testament. 1 Peter. 
give you a moment to get there. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 2. And what I want us to look at is the play on words that Peter makes that looks so similar to this idea of the Feast of Booths. Namely, when God had his people live in tents so that they would not forget but remember that they were sojourners and exiles, right? They left Egypt and they wandered around the wilderness for 40 years, after which God established the feast, which happened once a year. They would retreat from their normal life and spend seven days outdoor camping, but celebrating and resting. And by way of doing it in that mode, they were being reminded of what God had done for them in the past, that they were sojourners and exiles. Now, we're in 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read to you verses 11 and 12. This is what it says. Yeah, 11 and 12. This is what it says. Beloved, or loved ones, I urge you. Now, in the original Greek, what the New Testament was written in, this is the word parakaleo. It's a compound word. Para meaning alongside. This is something, for example, that we would use like parallel. It's something that comes alongside of. And kaleo means to call or to speak. And so parakaleo means to urge someone. But you get this picture from the compound word parakaleo that the person who's urging you is coming alongside you. They're coming alongside you to talk. They're not talking to you from across the room. They're shoulder to shoulder and kind of saying, I'm rubbing up against you, and I want you to hear what I'm telling you here. I urge you, get this, as sojourners and exiles. Sound familiar? To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Friends, there's a couple of things that I think tie nicely to the Feast of Booths in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, and they are these. First of all, Peter calls Christians sojourners and exiles. Peter calls Christians sojourners and exiles similarly to what God through Moses called the people of Israel. If you have the NIV, it doesn't say sojourners and exiles. It says aliens and exiles. That word sojourner or alien is defined as, and I quote, one who lives in a place that is not his true home. These words are used together, friends, because they're related. And being related and being used together, they offer an emphasis, namely to remind us that the world is not our home. This is not our final destination. We're tabernacling. We're boothing. We're just camping here for 70 or 80 years. And then we reach our final destination in glory, our Father's house, which is rightfully our inheritance since we've been adopted into God's family by Jesus Christ. Christians are called sojourners and exiles, which leads me to this moment, this important moment that I would like to use to ask you a question. As a sojourner in exile in this world, how comfortable 
are you here? How comfortable are you here? Now, we live in the United States of America, which I don't care what anybody says, we're good. This is the, I don't see anybody leaving. Nobody's going to Canada. We have our problems. We're a messed up group of people right now. That's a conversation for another day. You might want to join us next week for Christian integrity. That's going to be our, our study next week. But suffice it to say this morning that the United States of America is a pretty amazing place. And we are blessed in an incredible, incredible way. We're blessed with freedoms and liberties that so many other countries don't have and or don't enjoy. The reality of the matter is, I believe that the church and enjoying these liberties and these freedoms has lost its way a little bit and they've gotten comfy and complacent. We need some discomfort. We need to be reminded that as amazing as the United States of America is, this is not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the more important citizenship that we possess. We are citizens of his kingdom first before we are citizens of the United States of America, which means that as comfortable as we could be here in the United States of America, we ought never to be that comfortable to forget or to neglect a desire and a want to be with God rather than to be here. Oh, we've got our cars, and we've got our pools, and we've got our houses, and we've got our air conditioning, and we've got our freedoms, and we've got our books, and we've got, we have so many things going for us, amen? By the way, that's not satanic. The scriptures say a workman is worthy of his reward. We work hard for what we earn. We work hard for the beautiful building and campus that we have. We work hard to maintain it. But we don't do it so that we can go, look at this amazing building. I don't want to go to heaven. We do it so that when we come here, we're comfortable and we're honoring God with excellence. So that when guests come, they go, what a beautiful building. I can worship God in this building. I want to be a part of this church. It's not cool when guests come and the toilet doesn't flush. Or the paint is 30 years old. That's not doing things to the excellence and glory of God, amen? So we do things with a sensitivity to people, but we're not doing it for people. We're doing it to his glory and excellence, but we're not doing it because this is where we want to live forever. If Jesus says, I'm coming, I'm like, come. This is what John says in the book of Revelation. At the end, he goes, even so, come, Lord Jesus, Come. And we should always have an excitement and an anticipation for what God has for in store for us. Why? Because we're just passing through. Doesn't matter how amazing our life might be, how amazing our family might be, how amazing our love life might be, how amazing our, you name it. All of this pales in comparison to being with Jesus. Do you feel like a sojourner in exile? Do you feel like, yeah, you know what, I live here, but something ain't right? That's the way you should feel. There should be a struggle and an angst present in your life when it comes to 
how you fit in. But why? Why is that the case? Great question. This leads to the second thing that I think we can pull and liken to the Feast of Booths from the Apostle Peter. Peter reminds Christians of godly ethics. What distinguishes Christians from the world isn't what they wear, it isn't how they speak, it isn't where they live. What distinguishes Christians from the world is the Christian ethic. Let me say that again. What distinguishes Christians from the world is the Christian ethic. That's what matters. Now, we believe in things like, for example, modesty. We believe that we should carry ourselves a certain way, of course. But there are plenty of people who work on brickle, who dress very nice every day, and they're as godless as Satan. Their clothes don't make them better. The point that Peter is making is you look like them, you sound like them, you walk like them, but you're not like them because your ethic distinguishes you from the world. The way you view sexuality. It's a very popular topic today. We see Christians failing and faltering on the right and the left on this issue as we get hammered over the head by a minority in our country about what is sexually acceptable, permissible, or praiseworthy. But when we read the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, the Bible says that God created man and woman in his likeness and in his image. And then when we get to chapter 2, it tells us that Adam and Eve were the first husband and wife, and God blessed that marriage. Anything aside from that is a perversion of God's design. It's a twisting of God's design. Wait, 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 wait. No, no, there's no wait. That's it. That's it. You're not arguing with me. You're arguing with the Bible now. Now, if you want to have an argument with the Constitution of the United States in one hand and the Bible in the other, that's a little more complex. I get that because there are people in our country with whom we may not agree ethically, who are still citizens of the United States of America. But to whom do we belong? If you belong to Christ, the Christian ethic must be the pervasive ethic in your life, which means it must inform every decision and thought that you have. It is contradictory to say I'm a Christian, but. It is contradictory to say I'm a Christian, although. Friends, what distinguishes us from everyone else is the fact that we don't think like them or believe like them. If we think like them and believe like them, then then the question is, are we really sojourners and exiles? Are we influencing culture, or is culture influencing us? This is an important question that has to be answered because the way you dress has little effect on your ethic. A couple of things I think that are important. Peter says here, in regards to godly ethics... Number one, 
we should abstain from the passions of the flesh. And that is sins that dishonor God. In the Bible, when they say the flesh, he's referring to the body. The body. Anything that you do with your body that dishonors God, that's a reference to sin in the flesh. So Peter says, don't dishonor God that way. Now, the reason he says this is because in the Greek culture, which Peter was a part of at this time, the Greeks Hellenized the world. So even though he was not in Greece, Greek, the Greek culture had made such an influence over all the known world that everyone was even familiar with the Greek language and the Greek culture, which means the sexual immorality that was common among the Greek culture had infiltrated the whole world. So Peter is saying to the Christians, they do that, but we don't. They do that, but we don't. An example of that today might be cohabitating. It's perfectly okay for people to cohabitate today, but not in this house. In this house, we get married. If you're a man and you're cohabitating with a woman, buck up, buy her a ring, and do the right thing. Don't be a chump. She's not your girlfriend. If you want her to be your wife, marry her. Love her well. If you can't or won't do that, move out and tell her, I'm not living with you until I can love you the way you ought to be loved. Ladies, if you're involved with someone who thinks that way, wait until God sends you the man who will love you properly, the way you deserve. It's a tragedy what our culture and society has done to the relationship that God designed for a man and a woman. It has become so cheap. It has become so mundane. We're going to move in. We're going to try it out. And the percentages show, statistically, by the way, that couples who cohabitate divorce at a much higher rate than couples who don't. It's a fact. That's just one example that I think is relevant. That should not happen in a Christian's life. There's a church here. And there's a pastor here. We can settle this marriage issue quick. 90 bucks, go to the courthouse, get your license. Do it right and God will honor it. Do it right and your conscience will be clear. Do it right and you will have a story to tell your children. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Doesn't matter what's commonly acceptable outside. Christian ethic. Secondly, he says we should be honorable. We should be honorable so that no evil can be said about us with justification. We should live godly lives to such an extent that no one can say anything bad about us because everybody will go, who? No, no, not him, not her. Our lives speak for us, friends. It doesn't matter what we say if our lives don't back up what we say. 
What we say is only powerful if our lives back up what we say. I'm going to read this passage to you in Matthew chapter 12. This is Jesus. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person. This is a parable, by the way. This is not theology that you're this is this is a parable it's a story okay this is a hypothetical if you will Jesus says when an unclean spirit has gone out of a person it passes through waterless places it seeks rest but it finds none and it says I will return to my house from which I came and when it comes it finds the house empty swept put in order And then it goes and it brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. The point that Jesus is making here, friends, is a point that ties very neatly with what Peter is saying in 1 Peter chapter 2. And that is this. Just because you wash your car and do your laundry doesn't mean you're clean. If the Spirit of God is not present, you are not clean. And if the Spirit of God is not present, you are always susceptible to the influence of the evil one. And if God gives you an opportunity to submit to him, that's what Jesus is saying here, unclean spirit leaves. But instead of this person submitting their life to Christ and living in obedience to God, what does he do? He windexes his mirror, does his laundry, says, look, everything's clean. And when the evil spirit comes back, he brings some friends, and then his last state is worse than the first. Why? Because his change was only superficial. We're not looking for superficial change. We're looking for people to be born again. How can I become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven by being born again. We were all born once, amen? But not all of us were born again. To be born again means to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. When you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, God gives you a new life. That's what it means to be born again. And when you get a new life, Peter is saying it looks different than your old life. And some people's new life and old life look way different. Like, Dimey's life, uh, my life, whoa. Big difference. But that's not the important question. The important question is, with the new life comes the new ethic. And are you living with that new ethic ethic, as a sojourner and an exile in this world? I know it's difficult to possess this ethic in a foreign land. I know it's difficult to maintain this ethic in a foreign land. It's very unpopular. Very unpopular. To tell someone, listen, I know you have the right to do it, but I don't think God honors this. If you don't think it's unpopular, try it sometime you will quickly find out what it feels like to be a sojourner in an exile. To close, let me say this. We've all traveled. Sometimes to important landmarks to visit family 
or for a vacation. And when we do so, we often stop at places that are nice enough for a night, but not nearly as nice as our final destination. Christian, do not forget that you are just camping here. You are just passing through. If we learn anything from the Feast of Booths, it's that. <laughs>